All right. Well, good morning, ladies. Did everybody get a folder and then the insert to go with the folder? And did you see Karis's handiwork? We have names this year, which is fun, thoughtful of her. It is uh, so encouraging to see you all here. It's so sweet to be able to be together. And uh, let's start our morning in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you've given to us. We recognize it as a, a gift from you. We thank you for Gilbert Bible Church. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that for this year as we get to gather together and look at your word, I pray that it would be a means of sanctification for each one of us, that we would grow in Christ's likeness, that we would grow in maturity, even as Paul says, he labors to see every man complete in Christ. And Lord, that is that is our desire for ourselves, that we would be mature, complete before you, sanctified, useful vessels for your purposes. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use the sacrifices that are made to get up early and be here on a Saturday morning and um, all that comes with that to be involved in each other's lives, Lord, that you would use all of these things as a means to that end, that we would grow in usefulness to you, our Savior. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is just so encouraging to me that you would be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming back. I was uh, welcoming the break when the semester ended last, last uh, I guess, what are we in now? The fall? So, so is it technically the fall yet? Or anticipating the fall? Not like the fall morally, but seasonally. Uh, when the spring semester ended, it was it was a welcomed break. And uh, yet just being together with the men yesterday morning and then being here this morning, uh, my heart is just filled with joy and realize how much, how much I miss and treasure these times together. And uh, most importantly, how, how the Lord uses these things to, to grow us. So you should have received a folder on your way in. Uh, in that folder, if this is your first time in EQ, uh, there's some resources in the back, and over the course of the year, we'll visit those resources, uh, especially the timeline of the Old Testament. If you guys remember, I'm sure you remember that if you were here last year. Um, we'll revisit that as well as different key dates from our Old Testament. That's part of our desire to grow in biblical con competency. Also, there's the blue trifold, the new man worksheet. And if you are not familiar with that is with what that is, I encourage you to go back and watch the first two lessons of EQ from last year. And we really dove into it in the second lesson, but the first lesson has to do with bibliology, so what we believe about the Bible, and, uh, and is a helpful resource in, uh, in knowing what that, that worksheet is. And we'll visit that worksheet as well over the, the course of this year again. And if you got a blue trifold and lost it and want another one, let me know and we can track down one for you so that you can have that. Well, what I want to do is I want to start by just talking about uh, briefly the purpose of EQ, what we're going after together for this next year. 
as well as some expectations. And then we'll dive into our lesson this morning. So there's no outline in your folder for what I'm talking about right now. This is, this is just kind of uh, housekeeping a little bit for us, but also helping us set expectations for this coming year. First of all, what, what is EQ all about? What are we going after? Why are we here? Why are we asking you to drag yourself out of bed on a Saturday morning every other week and be here at 7 a.m.? Uh, I don't know whose idea it was to start at that time, but I'll talk to him. Why? Well, it's, it's for this purpose, to disciple, equip, and encourage the men and women of Gilbert Bible Church to grow in deeper love for God and obedience to Jesus Christ, as well as faithfulness in their homes and in the body of Christ, that God might be glorified by the ever-increasing holiness and usefulness of his people. That's what we're going after. That's why we're here. And we do this by working through biblical fundamentals of the primary Christian disciplines pertaining to the heart, home, and ministry. You'll hear us reference D1, discipline one, heart, heart care, shepherding your heart, directing your heart, guiding your heart where it should go. And then discipline two, the home, that the first sphere that is impacted, the first sphere of our life that is impacted by the work that God is doing in our own heart is the immediate context that we find ourselves in our homes. And we need to be faithful there. And then discipline three or D3 is ministry. God calls us uh, not only unto him, but he calls us into the body of Christ. We are connected to one another. We are part of the body of Christ. And as such, we need to be faithful in our engagement and participation and service in the, the church. So those are the, the, um, the disciplines that we'll be working through. This morning, we're going to be talking about discipline one, heart care, uh, particularly as it relates to love for God. And we'll dive into that in a few, minute, few moments. So these are foundational or fundamental uh, practices, disciplines, not as in something that, hey, we've got to get through this stuff so that we can move on to the important or more mature or more seasoned disciplines. These are actually foundational in the sense that anything that we build on top of this, if this foundation isn't established and sustained, the, the rest that we build will be unstable. And so anything we do for Christ, if we've neglected to care for our own hearts before him, to worship him, to love him, to, to give all of ourselves unto him in service and worship, then anything that we do is just simply going to be moral conformity, external moral conformity. And so uh, as it goes with our homes and ministry, we don't want to be hypocrites. We want to be faithful to what God calls us to. And so these are fund foundational, fundamental disciplines that we're working through. And we'll also be talking about just biblical competency and, and Christian doctrines and practice just to fortify ourselves in these key elements of the Christian faith. What are the expectations? What, what do we ask of you? You've signed up. You're here. EQ is a two-year cyclical program. That means it just keeps cycling. That's our plan for now. We're starting the second year. And our intention is that anyone can jump in at any point in time and just pick up on when it's going and continue and benefit and grow. And we'll keep working through these lessons or similar lessons. Our, our desire is that as we get through this kind of two-year foundational uh, laying program, that as the needs of the church morph and change, we'll 
um, hopefully grow and strengthen the lessons and maybe have additional people able to come in and teach these lessons and things like that. That would be our desire to grow. But right now we're laying the foundational floor for this ministry and, uh, and we're eager to see what the Lord does through that. So we're starting year two. You're not behind. That's how we intended it if this is your first time. We just want to be able to grow and mature in these disciplines that we never graduate from, right? You never graduate from heart care. We just always have to care for our hearts with God's word. We always need to be cultivating greater desire and love for our Savior and faithfulness to him. And so with that, what are some of the expectations? One of the things we ask is for you to to commit to regular time in God's word. And our encouragement would be to expose your heart over the next year to the entire counsel of God's word, to, to pick a plan and read through the Bible in a year. If you've never done that, it is incredibly uh, encouraging, beneficial. Uh, it helps you understand why, why would we want to miss anything that God has given to us. It helps you know the continuity of God's word. And so uh, our encouragement is to start a Bible reading plan where you could read through the Bible in a year. That's not a mandate. We're not going to test you on that. We're not asking you to sign an affidavit declaring that you're doing that. If you have a different practice for reading God's word, um, you should feel the freedom to do that. However, our encouragement is, is to be intentional with your heart care as you work through God's word uh, systematically. Also participation. Um, just try to come when you can, be here, be engaged. Uh, we're going to have times of teaching each week, and then most weeks we'll have a time where we split into groups or there's time for discussion. And uh, in that time, we encourage you to engage and, and talk and share. And also, there's kind of two kinds of people, and I think you can all guess which one I am. There's oversharers, right? Any idea which one I am? <laughs> Without even hearing the second? Who can dominate the time and take away, they, they, you get so absorbed in what's on your heart that you want to share, and you unintentionally take time away from the rest of the group being able to share. Individuals like that, it's good to know yourself. That's not a criticism. That's just the nature of how some of us are wired. You need to have a consideration for others that makes you pull back and even think intentionally, what do I want to say? How do I want to say it? And I'm going to restrain myself to that. Others might be terrified to share. And you've got to overcome all sorts of anxiousness and fear just to say, hi, my name is. And that's, that's okay too, but both, both categories need to fight to serve one another in your participation. Those who are drawn to not say much, you need to work hard to participate and, and share what the Lord's encouraging you with. And those that are prone to talk too much, share less and make sure there's time for others. So that's, that's our encouragement to participate. And then also prayerfully contemplate the lessons, think through these things. At the end of each lesson, there's questions for consideration. We don't ask you to hand in homework. We're not grading homework. We're not giving feedback on homework at this point. Um, for those of you that were in Wellspring, that, that's different than what you experienced there where you did have to write out answers and submit it to a group leader and then they would give you feedback. I don't think there was a letter grade, but they'd give you feedback on things that were encouraging or things that they saw about your, uh, your interaction there. But our, our encouragement is even though there's not that direct accountability of having to hand in homework, you will glean from this what you put in. And for some of you in your season of life, 
it's a fight and a struggle to be here and you can trust the Lord with what you gain from being here. For others, you may have more opportunity to really pour into the lessons and pray and contemplate and even write out answers and things like that to those questions and, uh, and you'll only benefit from taking the time to work through those things. And so uh, prayerfully contemplate the lessons within your capacity and then I already talked about serving others and then attendance when you're able, make it a priority, be here when you can. Uh, it is not just a ministry where you think independently on if you should go or stay home. On a, I'm really tired. I think I'm just going to stay because I, I want to sleep. Well, that actually draws away from the benefit of all of us being here together with one another under the same teaching, di uh, dialoguing about these things. And so just recognize that your participation and engagement, it actually has an impact on the whole. Sometimes when there's a larger group like this, there's a temptation. And I know oftentimes, especially in fellowship groups and other church obligations, it can feel this way where it's really big. Nobody will miss me if I'm there. And these other things are, weighing, are looming and weighing really heavily on me. And so it'd be better for me if I just do this. Well, that, that's not well-informed thinking. It does impact the rest of everyone. Whether or not you perceive the direct effect of your engagement with one another, God's intention is that the body being connected to one another, working properly, functioning properly, causes the growth of the body. And so there's these dual realities. Your participation in the church is indispensable, and each one of us is fully negotiable. How does that work? It's God's intention. God will keep Gilbert Bible Church going as long as he desires, regardless of what happens to any one of us, and each one of our participation is vitally important in the growth of the body. So keep that in mind uh, with the understanding there will be some weeks when you won't be able to be here. That's fine. We ask you to listen to the lessons just to, to stay engaged. Uh, they're posted online. All right, any questions, comments, critiques, criticisms? Not yet. Okay. All right. Well, let's jump into our lesson. This should be your first page, Religious Affections. And when I first thought about this lesson, when what I wanted to cover for this lesson... I had named it, Tom and I were talking about the importance of, of just a love for Jesus, a love for our Savior. And so when I first thought about this lesson, I had named it Religious Affections, Cultivating a Love for God or Cultivating a Love for Jesus. And then as I started diving more into it, uh, I, liked, I liked the idea, and I think this, this title is more in line with actually what we're called to do from Scripture, which is directing yourself to love God. Loving God is a commandment. It's an obligation that every person on the planet, every human that has ever existed, has, has had before God the call or the instruction or the duty to love God. And yet in our fallen state, this is not what flows naturally out of our heart. This is not in line with our sinful nature. We don't love God as we ought, and yet he is the supreme being, eternally existing, uniquely holy. He is pure and righteous, and God only possesses character that actually demands our love. Have you ever thought about that? Every single attribute, every, every part of God's nature is lovable, is love-worthy, 
and we're called to love him. So God is not calling us to love him despite himself. In this room, we're called to love one another and we actually have to love each other despite one another. We all fall short of moral perfection and being perfectly lovable. That might be a shocker to some of us. What? Maybe it was when I was five. I didn't, I was, how could, how could somebody not love me? (laughs) We, We all, we all at times perceive ourselves this way. The reality is none of us is perfectly this way. And yet God actually is supremely lovable. It is the appropriate, right, good response in every way to love everything about God. We never love God despite himself. Everything about God's character actually calls for us to love him, and yet we are sinners. We know the heart is deceitful above all else, and one of the biggest deceptions the heart can convince us, can convince you of, is that something other than loving God is better than loving God, right? That's an ultimate deception because God is supremely worthy of our love, and every time we find ourselves being drawn to love something other than God, more than God, That is an extreme deception. Our natural inclination is to reject grace, to reject the Lord, to look to works, to look to our activities, to reject his love, to look to the things that we do for salvation, to commit ourselves outwardly to conformed behavior or selfish reasoning and to miss loving God as we ought to miss a relationship with our Lord and Savior. And that is what God desires of us, a relationship, unadulterated love and devotion to him. And God says, abandon yourself, cling to me, submit to me, live for me, and love me with all that you are. The religious leaders in Jesus' day and age, they were incredibly deceived. They got, not really, but they thought they got moral conformity. They thought they knew God, and yet they were severely self-deceived, willfully self-deceived, in that they claimed the name of Yahweh, and yet they did not know him. They did not have that relationship with him. In fact, one of the most sobering passages in Scripture for each one of us should be Matthew 7. Go ahead and turn there for a moment. Matthew chapter 7. There's a warning for all of us here that we find in Jesus' words pertaining to a relationship with him versus religious practice and religious engagement. Matthew chapter 7, we'll look at verses 21 through 23. Jesus says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." Salvation, the Christian life, it's not an issue of verbal declaration only. There are many, Jesus says, who make verbal declarations, Lord, Lord. And not only verbal declarations, but look at all the things that they did. 
They did these things. But the reality is that verbal declarations must be accompanied by a heart of submission to God's standard. We know this flows out of genuine faith. There are some who say, Lord, Lord, who declare with their lips the lordship of Jesus and even do things for him, but their heart has not been transformed. They have not yielded to God in faith. They have no true relationship with God. And that's possible for each one of us to think that we've said something externally, to think that we've done something for God to merit his salvation, and yet not to have our hearts actually submitted in faith and love to our Savior. And in Scripture, God's word, he connects these verbal declarations with with needing to be rooted out of a heart of faith, a heart of belief. And we see this really well demonstrated in Romans 10. If you were to just look at verse 13, where Paul says, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, you you get a piece of the pie. You get a piece of what God is after. But when you read it in its context, you see the connection between a heart that is yielded in belief and faith, and that's where that declaration flows out of. In verse 8, Paul says, but what does it say? So this is Romans, Romans 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. There we see the first reference to the heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and here's where he partners with it, the faith, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. He's equating these things, that the verbal declaration must be rooted out of a heart of belief, and a heart of belief will lead to these declarations of what is true. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Then verse 13, so in the context of this declaration and genuine heartfelt belief and trust and faith in God, then in light of that, whoever calls on the name of the Lord in that category will be saved. This should be a sobering warning and reality for us. We cannot allow ourselves to be engaged in a bunch of Christian activities, have moral conformity, but actually lack a heart of love, a heart of belief, a heart of yielded faith for our God. Rather, everything that we do must flow out of that love for God. And this love is not simply going to be reactive in the sense that we hope up, that we wake up and we hope we love God today. Right? Oh man, I, I just hope my, I hope I'm feeling it. <laughs> I hope I'm feeling love for God today. That's not the call here. That's not what we're talking about. We must actually direct our affections. We must, must direct our wayward heart as it should go. That's why the command is so vital, is so necessary, it's so consequential, because this is not, again, our natural inclination. That we just wake up feeling love for God. Sometimes that may happen in our new birth, but that's not the dictator. We are actually called to direct our affections, to direct our love, our volition of love towards the Lord. And This reality is eternally consequential. Whether or not we do this is eternally consequential. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. You must direct yourself to love God. This is the foundational element of heart shepherding. Everything that we shepherd our heart to needs to flow out of this discipline of loving God. Listen, as Gilbert Bible Church, if we have the best services and the biggest smiles and the greatest teaching we could possibly imagine and the most welcoming hospitality, but we miss love for God, that would be devastating. Everything, everything has to flow out of love for God. And so how do we do this? We shepherd our hearts. God, today and every day, I'm going to choose, knowing it can only be accomplished by your grace, it's only enabled by the power of God, only enabled by his spirit, I'm going to direct myself by your grace, through your spirit, I'm going to direct my affections and my inner being, my inner man, I'm directing myself to love you above all else. That's the call. And that and that alone will produce a life that is pleasing and worshipful to the Lord. That will guard us from being ones who, hey, look at all these things I did for you. And Jesus responding and saying, all those things that you think you did, you, you were lawless. You didn't love me. You missed the greatest command, the essential command, the supreme command. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. How do we shepherd our heart this way? How do we direct our heart to love God? And so in your outline, we must first understand the command to love God. So that was all intro. Now we're on understand the command to love God. Number one, understand the command to love God. And in a moment, we'll talk about that God is the standard of our love. But before we get there, a little bit uh, under understanding the command to love God, there's submission and faith, repentance and love for God that leads unto salvation, right? We love God, we repent, we believe in God. That leads unto salvation. That leads us into salvation by God's grace. For one who experiences this by God's grace, the call is then to continue in love for God. So we love God unto salvation, but then we're also called to continue perpetually in that love for God. We do this imperfectly in this life. We fall short of loving God all the ways that we ought. And in fact, God knows that we fall short in fulfilling this command perfectly. And wonder, one of the, the wonderful things about heaven, about a glorified body that is unable to sin, is that on that day, we will actually obey this command fully and perfectly. That should actually be one of the things that we anticipate and long for about heaven. All of the ways that I get in the way of loving you like I ought will be removed, and I will actually give you the love you deserve. How sweet will that be? Yet the call is the same. We don't obey this perfectly in this life. One day we will, and the call is the same. We, we first love God upon coming to him in salvation, then we continue in that love for him. And anyone who experiences the saving grace of God in salvation 
what we know from scripture is that they actually will continue on in their love for God. And so in those moments where we're, where we're struggling, Lord, I'm not, I'm not loving you like I ought, help me. If you're his, you can have confidence that he will help you and he will sustain you even in your imperfect, fledgling love for him. And for those who abandon the Lord, who turn away from him, that demonstrates that their love was never actually genuine at all. That's the parable of the seed and the sower, as well as elsewhere in scripture. So let's talk a little bit about the command to love God. We see it all over the pages of scripture. And just by way of reference, these passages really repeat, repeat themselves in many ways. So you can just listen. You can write down the references if you'd like. But Deuteronomy 6.5, Deuteronomy 6.5 is very clear. You shall, this is God's instruction for the nation of Israel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. The instruction is repeated in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Matthew 22, you see Jesus responding to what is the greatest commandment, and we see that this commandment is not only for Israel, but this is a commandment for all. Jesus is asked in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 38, Matthew 22, verses 36 through 38, teacher, they're referencing Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. We are clearly called from Scripture to love God. Directly commanded from Scripture and from Jesus' own mouth, it is the great commandment. Sometimes we think about our love for God in this kind of abstract thing that is right. We should love God, right? That's what we should do as Christians. And sometimes I do it and sometimes I don't. And we miss the fact that this is a perpetual ongoing command to love God. There is never a time where our love from God should be excused as absent. And it be okay. We're just always called to love God. And it's the supreme command, the supreme call for every human. And not only are we called to love God, but we also see that Jesus directly, as he's interacting with these Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, equates loving God with loving him. In John 8, 42, Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. And he's equating their relation, true relationship with God the Father, true relationship with God as loving Christ as well, as loving Jesus. Jesus is saying at this, at this moment to the most religious, the most God-oriented, Old Testament-saturated people in the world, you don't actually know God. Why? He's not your father. Why? In fact, he goes so far as to say that they are of their father, the devil, because they reject Jesus. This is staggering. What is the litmus test for knowing whether somebody is a lover of God? Well, do they love Jesus? 
the true Jesus. That's the whole point of Colossians 1 and 2, that, that you have the right Jesus. It's not just a Jesus, the right Jesus. The, the leaders in Jesus' day, they had no problem with the idea of a Messiah. They had no problem with the idea of a Christ. They had no problem with the idea of one who would rescue them and establish them among all the other nations. What they had a problem with was God's version of the Christ. They rejected Jesus. He didn't come the way they wanted. He wasn't the Jesus they wanted. He wasn't the Messiah they wanted. And so they rejected him. And Jesus says, you reject me, you reject the Father. And these people who would have been viewed and would have viewed themselves as the pinnacle of spiritual maturity are called sons of the devil. Do they embrace Jesus as he really is? Not just some human teacher, not just some prophet alongside other prophets, but as the very son of God. What about John 5, verse 42 and 43? Jesus says to those same leaders, I know you don't have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. Again, he equates not actually knowing the Father because you don't know the Son. So this call to love God is equal to, it encompasses also the call to love Jesus. And the call to love Jesus is an expression of loving the Father. We love both in this. And this is incredibly consequential when we think about many false religions. Mormons, Catholics, Muslims, Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventists, all of these so-called Christian-type religions. The list goes on. Someone says, I, I worship the same true God. I worship God just like you. We just have some different nuances about what we think about Jesus. Jesus says you don't worship the true God because you reject me. You didn't receive the Son of God, and so you don't actually embrace the Father. You must embrace Jesus as Scripture puts him forth, not your idea of Jesus. So what is the relationship, just to summarize this, between loving God and loving Jesus and this command? You can't have one with the, uh, without the other. If you truly love Jesus, you love the Father. And if you truly love the Father, you love Jesus. And not only this, but Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, also, whoever loves father or mother, now he's not talking about the heavenly father, but simply earthly relationships. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus says, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So now you have two powerful, deep, life-transforming commands. Love God the Father with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love Jesus more than your familial relationships, more than your family, more than your husbands, more than your parents, more than your children. God is to be the supreme love in our lives. That's not saying don't love your family, right? Obviously. But our love for Christ must supersede our love for anyone or anything else. Now, what does it mean to love? How do we know what this love that we're called to have for God, that we're called to direct our heart to for God, how do we know what it actually is? What is love, right? There's a bunch of definitions that you might find about love. Well, 
First, look to God. Look to God as the standard of love. That's our first point under understanding the command to love. God is the standard of love. The supreme standard and example of this agape, that's the Greek word that's used here, an agape love of God, is God himself. And where do we see God's love most expressed? Well, the, one of the most familiar verses in all of Scripture says it beautifully. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son. And the language here, this God so loved the world, the, the so there is not uh, an expression of extent, but of manner. Do you understand the difference? It's not, oh, God's love, he, he so loved the world. This is how much he loved the world. Listen, God doesn't have standards of love. Like he kind of sort of loves and then sometimes he doesn't love all the way. And he, God always loves perfectly. It's not like, oh, well, God had like a, a really engaged love and then he had a disengaged love. God only loves perfectly. This isn't the extent of his love. He loved the world so much. No, it's how he loved. He loved the world as so that he gave his son. In this way, the Greek preposition there, he loved the world in this manner. He loved the world this way, that he gave his only son. What was the expression of his love? Self-giving, sacrificial, giving of himself for the sake of others. Even for others who cared nothing for him, who hated him, that's what we're described as in scriptures, those enemies of God, at enmity with God, haters of God. You see, it's not simply feelings of affection. Affections are to be involved, but it is a determined act of the will, which always results in determined acts of self-giving. That's love. A determined act of the will that results in determined acts of self-giving. Listen, you're called to love your husbands. That doesn't always flow out through warm, fuzzy feelings. But a determination of your will, I am choosing to give of myself for the blessing of my husband. And as we do that, what do we actually do with that? We also direct our affections. I don't feel like giving of myself. I'm going to fight what I feel with what I know to be true. God calls me to this. This is better. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give of myself. And trust the Lord with my affections. I'm going to direct them as God calls me to. But it's rooted in a determination of the will to give of self. It's a, love is a willing, joyful desire to put the welfare, welfare of others above your own. Right? Just because you go through the actions of self-giving doesn't mean you're meeting God's standards. If you ask your child, you need to love your brother Share your toy. Love your brother by sharing your toy. They go, here, take it, and they throw it at their face. Well, they shared their toy. Well, no, that, that didn't engage the heart that needs behind that self-giving, sacrificial care for another. This is a willing, joyful desire to put the welfare of others above your own. And in true love, there's no place for pride or vanity, arrogance, selfishness, self-seeking, or self-glory. It is an act of choice we are commanded to exercise even towards our enemies. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 5, 44 and 45. 
And God so loved us, he demonstrated love in this way, that even while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more should we love others as well and love him in return? And so God gets to set the standard of what our love is to be, and God's standard is the abandoning of self and full-fledged commitment to another, to him. That's what it means to love God, to abandon ourselves in full-fledged commitment to him. How do we do this? How do we love God this way? What is our hope for rising to this standard of love? Well, God is the source of our love. God is our hope. God is the standard of love and God is the source of our love. That's the second bullet point in the outline. Everybody with me on the outline? Excellent. God is the source of our love. Remember the story about the Pharisee who asked Jesus to come to dinner in Luke 7? He didn't wash Jesus' feet when he entered. He didn't kiss Jesus, embrace Jesus. He didn't do anything to show affection for Jesus. And then there's this woman of the street, a lowly sinful prostitute, leaning over Jesus' bare feet, weeping. Tears are falling on his dirty feet. She's taking her hair and washing Jesus' feet with her hair. It's an incredibly compelling scene. The Pharisees all worked up and says, if you were a prophet, you would know what kind of woman this is. You wouldn't let her do this to you. She's a sinner. Jesus tells the Pharisee a story. A man had two debtors. One owed him $5,000 and one owed him $5. He forgave them both. Who will love him more? And what's the Pharisee's response? Well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus says, you have judged rightly. He says, when I came in here, you didn't kiss me. You didn't embrace me. You didn't wash my feet. But from the time I came in, she's wept over my feet. She's washed them with her tears, wiped them with her hair because she's been forgiven much. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. Where does love come from? It comes from being stunned, staggered, overwhelmed, grateful by being loved by God, that you were loved by God. This love comes from being overwhelmed by the person of Jesus dying on our behalf and then rising again. Though we have no merit in it of ourselves to earn or have a right to a relationship with God, God has accomplished it all through the death of his son on our behalf. When that grips you, then you will taste what it is to treasure Jesus as you ought. To delight in Jesus, to be satisfied in Jesus. When you see yourself rightly as a hopeless, helpless sinner, a godless sinner, as Romans 5 talks about, and yet you have been saved by the wonderful treasure of God's lavish grace. That should incite in us a love in response to God's great love for us. The Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. What is the source of our love? It's God himself. We love because he first loved us. Loved us. Christianity, what Jesus demands of us, is not most 
deeply and most fundamentally decisions of the will that we do good things. That comes later. First and foremost, Christianity is a new birth, a new birth that we've been seeing in 1 Peter. It's a deep and a profound transformation of what we treasure and who we are at our core, what we love, who we love. And if our deepest love isn't for Jesus, then Jesus says we're not worthy of him. And being worthy of Jesus doesn't mean deserving Jesus. It means being appropriate as a redeemed one, as a forgiven person to be in fellowship with him. When he is your supreme treasure, you belong to him. And this flows out of his work of the gospel. If you want to cultivate a deeper love for God, look to the cross. Remember what you deserved. Renew your mind with the reality of your own wayward life. Rebellion against him and saved by grace. Next, what are we to understand about this command? Well, next, uh, that we're called to engage all of our faculties in our love for God. Love is more than a feeling, the song says. That's true, but it also should involve all of our faculties, all of who we are. That's the call. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all of your heart? What is my heart? The heart in Hebrew was used to describe, it's an understanding of the core of your identity, your inner man, who you are at the core is expressed in the phrase, your heart. So to love God with all your heart is to love him with all of your inner being. The source of all of your thoughts, all of your words, all of your actions, where all of that flows out of, you are to love God. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart or guard your heart with all diligence for out of it, are all the issues of life, or the wellspring of life. It is the wellspring of life. It's the core of your being. Love God with the deepest, purest part of who you are, your deepest identity. Soul has to do with your emotions. It was Jesus who said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. In Matthew 26, 38, he was speaking of his soul as the seed of his emotions. Mind may best be seen as the will, it's the power of intention, the power of purpose. We sometimes say, I've made up my mind to do this. This is the kind of clarification of, of might. It's, it's the, the sense, your sense. And then Jesus adds strength to reference the physical or energy or exertion. This should flow outward. So the intellectual, emotional, volitional, and physical elements of your being all combine to love the one true God. That is the call here. It is an intelligent love. That means it's well-informed, but it is also an emotional love. It is a willing love, and it is an active love. It is all-encompassing. We engage all of our faculties, all of who we are, every part of ourselves are called to love God. We are to direct ourselves to love God in this self-abandoning, self-giving devotion at the core of every part of who we are. Now, how do we do this? How do we do this? How, what does this actually look like for us? How do we gain and grow in this kind of love? Well, that's our second main point, embracing the command to love God. And I heard pages turn, so I think that's on the next page. Embracing the command to love God. 
Coffee break. Embracing the command to love God. Well, first of all, meditate on God's love for you and Jesus. We already talked about that, right? That's the first bullet point under embracing the command to love God. Meditate on God's love for you in Jesus. Remember the story of the woman who had been forgiven much. Renew your mind intentionally and regularly with the truth of the gospel. Shepherd your heart with the truth of the gospel. The giveaway book that we have at church is... Um, Oh, what's it called? Gospel Primer, thank you. Brain, brain lapse, I should have taken two sips of coffee. The Gospel Primer, so, so helpful, such a valuable resource. If you don't have that book, come talk to me. You, you need that book. It's such a helpful devotional tool. If you haven't looked at it, each chapter gives impactful uh, ways that the gospel intersects with your life, and it's maybe two or three pages each section. So it's a wonderful devotional book to just each day pray through, read and pray through that, or something along those lines. It's, it's such a, a wonderful resource. Renew your mind intentionally and regularly with the truth of the gospel. Paul says it's of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel. And, and by this, the gospel is being the first importance. He says, it's by the gospel that you are saved and it's upon the gospel that you stand. And so remember the immeasurable love of Jesus that he would die for you. Let your inner being, your heart, your emotions be aroused by the reality of what you know you deserve and what you have been given in Jesus. And listen, don't abandon ship if your emotions are slow to follow on any given day. Still just be faithful Renew your mind. Let your emotions eventually be led by the renewing of truth in your mind. Uh, directing emotions is something that seems so counterintuitive in our culture. We oftentimes see the, the idea that we're victims of our emotions. I'm victim of anxiety. I'm victim of fear. And God tells you to direct your, your emotions. Don't be anxious. Do not fear. The only fear that we are to have is the fear of the Lord. He actually says, we're going to see in 1 Peter 2, crave, long, desire the word. <laughs> Wait, you're telling me to crave the word. Craving is something that I find just happening. I crave coffee. I crave brisket. Maybe I'm the only one that craves brisket in here. That was better for the men. I crave a Cobb salad. Is that more feminine? No? Okay. We'll stick with brisket. I crave these things. I just, I just kind of happen to long for them. God says crave the word. God says love him. God says don't be anxious. God says don't fear. We actually are called to, to, to grasp up our emotions, to rein them in, and direct them where they should go. We do this imperfectly. Again, don't abandon ship. Because it takes intentional effort and growing. All of us, none of us have arrived in this. We're all growing in grace. If you hear this and you go, oh, I fall so short. Yep, that's the body of Christ in this life. It won't always be this way. Again, that's the beauty of heaven. And yet for now, we are, as Tom frequently says, we're just beggars helping other beggars. We're all in desperate need of our Savior, working to grow in these things. None of us has it wired. Are you kidding? <laughs> Not yet. Someday, by God's grace, 
But here we're just, we, we press on, we persevere, we aim towards it, and we trust the Lord. Next, embracing the command to love God. Meditate on God's love for you and Jesus. Also, guard yourself from idols. Guard yourself from idols. Remove competing affections in your life with the love of God. Things that compete for your love of God, remove them. 1 John 2.15. 1 John 2.15, John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world. And then he kind of summarizes this love of the world, this sinful disposition of not knowing God, into three major categories. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful, boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We should guard ourselves from anything that falls into any one of these categories. Your indulgence in fleshly lusts, that's not just sexual lusts. Fleshly lusts are anything of your carnal self that you have strong passions for. That could be a multitude of different things. Sexual lust is included in this, but it's way more comprehensive than that. Your fleshly, your carnal, strong passions. Your indulgence of the lust of the eyes, what you long for, what you see that you think will satisfy. So these strong passions that you have within you, these things that you look at with your eyes and you say, that'll satisfy me. If my family were this way, if my husband was this way, if my life had these circumstances, if I just had this job, if I just had this thing, all of these things that we covet in our hearts and we think, that's what I want to go after. That will satisfy. That will give me what, my, what I need. Put those things aside. And then the boastful pride of life. This is your gaining for yourself accolades in this life. They will distract and inhibit your ability to love God and in turn distract you from a life given unto God in love. And a life that is consumed with and wholly given to these things actually is evidence that God's love does not dwell in you. That's the nature of the old man that lives that way. We're to put that off. We're no longer to be dominated by these things. Are they still present? Yes, we fight against them. Does our flesh still wage war on us? Absolutely. First Peter 2. Our flesh wages war against us, but we fight it. We resist these things. We have growing holiness practically as we reject those things and turn to God. Don't be dominated or preoccupied by these things. And where these things are present, flee them. At the very end of 1 John, what does John say? say? He, if you've ever read the book of 1 John through its entirety, it almost seems like an abrupt ending. But when you understand the flow of the book, that it's so cyclical and talking about love, genuine love for God being expressed through love for Christ, love for his word, love for his people, hatred of sin, rejection of the world, rejection of idols. And it just keeps going through that a few different times throughout the book. And then he gets to the very end. And what does he say? The summary statement? <laughs> Little children, guard yourself from idols. Mic drop. <laughs> How helpful is that? How crucial is that in our love for God, in our faithfulness to living out the Christian walk, that we reject idols? What is an idol? Anything you're willing to sin to get or sin because you don't have. 
Anything you're willing to sin to go get or sin because you don't have. Reject those things. Now, this is especially hard. This is, this is especially hard when there are good things in our life that we're called to be engaged with that we have propensities to idolize, right? You can't abandon your children because of the temptation to make your children idols. But you must love Jesus more than them. And so your thinking that might elevate them above your love for Christ, you need to abandon that thinking You don't abandon your children. Be faithful in your love for your children as God calls you to care for them. And so we don't just reject those things that God calls us to. We actually make them submit to the proper place in our lives under our love for Christ. That's where the love of God is to be in our lives. It is the overarching disposition of the Christian life that everything flows out of. Our love for our children flows out of our love for Christ. Our love for our husbands flows out of our love for Christ. Our love for our family flows out of our love for Christ. Our love for one another, it flows out of our love for Christ. Our love for our enemies flows out of our love for Christ. That's what it means for God to love him being the first and foremost, the greatest commandment. Love God. And then lastly, embracing the command to love God, scrutinize your love for God. Test it, evaluate it, critique it. We are not necessarily called to do this for one another, to question everybody's motives at every turn and the genuineness of everything they do. That's not what we're talking about here. But for ourselves, don't we want to do this? Am am I loving God as I ought? Are there competing affections? Are there idols in my heart? I want to get rid of them. We already talked about the relationship between loving Jesus and loving God. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you loving him as God calls you to? Do you love the things Jesus loves? What does Jesus love? He loves his word. He loves his bride. If you say you love Jesus, but you don't like your Bible, you don't like church, you don't want to worship him, Uh, that might be an indicator that you are not loving Jesus as you ought. I loved what Omri said a few weeks ago from Psalm 22 about loving singing with other Christians. And if you find yourself, I don't want to be around other Christians. I I give or take the worships. My relationship with God is just about me and God. I don't need, I don't need all the church stuff. You're actually going to be really disappointed in heaven. Why? Because there's going to be a multitude in heaven, singing worship to Christ, the lamb slain. And Jesus is actually leading us in that. It's going to be a, a wonderful, beautiful, glorious scene. And if you, don't, if you don't enjoy worshiping with the people of God now, you should, you should evaluate some things in your life. Direct yourself to love those things. Also, is there fruit in your life? John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What's interesting here is sometimes this is used as the standard of love. Loving Jesus is keeping his commandments. No, an outflow of loving Jesus is keeping his commandments. You should keep his commandments. That flows out of your love. But simply obeying without a heart engaged in directed affections and in engaging all of your faculties and self-giving uh, sacrifice for him 
So, scrutinizing your life, it, am I growing in obedience? Do I push against every command from Scripture that God gives to the New Testament believer? We need to be thoughtful about this, right? We need to be intentional. We need to be careful with how we read our Bibles. Not every command in Scripture is a command for the New Testament Christian. Okay, so I don't want to bind your conscience to every time you see something directed to anyone, I got to obey. Every command that God gives to the New Testament believer, we should obey. We should obey. Are you faithful to that? Do you find yourself making excuses? Do you find yourself justifying? I know I'm, I know I'm not supposed to be angry. I know the anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God, but you don't know what this person did. You don't know what I've been through. I know I'm supposed to be involved in the church, but you don't know how I was betrayed in the past. Or do we run to God's commands knowing that, as John says in 1 John 5, the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Every instruction the Lord gives us is for our good. We can trust him. Jesus does not say, loving me is keeping my commandments. It's more than that. But the fruit of love for Jesus is obedience. Is there growing obedience in your life? And each of us can only do this because of the great love that we've received from God. Remember that. Where does this love come from? It comes from the love that we've received. It's the grace of God. It's the mercy of God. It's the benevolence of God to give to us his spirit, to give us divine power. As Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3, we've got divine power. He's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. His divine power is granted to us. How amazing that the Lord of the universe would set his affections, would direct himself to love us willingly, give of himself for our good. How could we not want to abandon ourselves and offer ourselves to him in love and devotion to be used for his purposes and ultimately for his glory? That should be the heart for each one of us who loves Jesus. And so let us aim for this together. Let us be patient with one another in our failings. Let us spur one another onto this and let us aspire to have an ever-increasing love for our great God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this command. It is so good for us to be directed to love you. And it is so amazing that you would love us. Help us to grow. Help us to be strengthened in this. Help us again, as we prayed this morning, to be useful vessels for your glory. And we ask in Jesus' name, 